Colossians chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8. Last week we started this series called, I didn't give you a name last week because I don't, I don't think I had a title for the series until after I'd already preached the first message. But uh, the title of our series is going to be Christ is All because that's the message of the book. And the purpose is that we, we would together um, reach in Christ all the riches of full conviction so that we would be beyond the reach of all deception. That is not only in the world, but is also so often within the church. And I'm not saying in Ald's Chapel per se, although as I mentioned last week, we, we have run into our fair share of false teachers who have even tried to come into the church and spread false teaching. But um, from the lies of the world and from lies that might infiltrate the church, we are protected as we get deeper and deeper into Christ and the knowledge of Christ. And so Paul's stress is constantly, Christ is all. Let us cling to him and not be led astray by anything or anyone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin, and then we'll read our eight verses. Father, we look to you today for your help because we don't have it in us. We can't help ourselves. We don't have strength within us. We don't have wisdom on our own. We don't know you on our own. On our own, the gospel doesn't make sense to us. But you open our eyes. And you open our ears and our hearts. And so that's what we pray for again. As you have done it in the past, from the beginning of our life in you, and have done so often and frequently throughout our lives, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears again. And we know, Father, that you will. Because you have already given to us your Son. And if you have given to us Jesus, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? We pray, Father, that your spirit would have freedom to work in us. And I pray, Father, that we would always keep in this church and in our own souls and in our households, we would keep central the gospel of your son. It's in his name I pray these things. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
I believe that this has always been the case for the church, that the greatest danger facing the church is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ for granted. One way, perhaps another way that you could say it is that the church just assumes the gospel. Instead of concentrating and keeping it in focus, the church takes it for granted and the church just assumes it. And the telltale sign of this, that the church is taking the gospel for granted, is that the gospel is not central to everything that we are and everything that we do. If we don't have the gospel central to our preaching and our teaching, central to our praying and central to our singing, central to our serving and in our relating to one another, those are the telltale signs that the gospel is not central in the church anymore. And I think that this is the test, and I think it uh, it might take a little while for any church, for any uh, church ministry to discern. But if you apply that test and that question, is the gospel central to this? Is the gospel central to this preaching? Is, is this ministry, this church, singing constantly over the gospel? Is the gospel uh, threaded all, of, all through their prayers? And of course, we must first and foremost apply the test to ourselves. But this is the way that we know that the gospel may not be central if, if we're falling short in these areas. So we take the gospel for granted when we assume... We, we know and we'll gladly confess, we need the gospel for conversion, but less so further on in the Christian life. We think that we need the gospel for justification, absolutely, but we need it quite less for sanctification. We can safely move on into other teachings, and we even should, because there are limits to the gospel's power and there are limits to the gospel's application to our lives. Limits to the gospel's riches and limits to its relevancy. All of that is taking the gospel for granted. And let me tell you what is perhaps the greatest danger to the church in this. Um, to use the words of one author who is very gospel-centered himself, D.A. Carson, he says, if you, if you have one generation that knows the gospel and the generation behind it only merely assumes the gospel, then the third generation is going to lose the gospel altogether. And that's the great danger to the church. One knows it. The next only assumes it. Then the third behind will lose it altogether. And this is the danger that the book of Colossians would prevent Christians taking the gospel for granted. And so what Paul does all throughout this letter in earnest is write to us over and over and over, showing us that Christ is all. Christ is all. And I, I was about to say it goes without saying, but I think we should say it all the time. Let's not just assume we know the meaning and the content of the gospel. When we talk the gospel, we're talking the good news from God concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we'll talk more about it in a moment, the content of the gospel. But here we have Paul. Let me just cover the first two verses quickly here. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has been personally commissioned and authorized by Christ. The word simply means one who is sent. So Paul has been sent personally by Christ. He is writing this. You could say perhaps a, a co-author would be Timothy. Really, Timothy is more the uh, amanuensis for Paul, meaning he is copying down Paul's dictation for this letter. Uh, that's most likely the case. And, of course, Paul is uh, the author by the, the perfect moving and leading of the Holy Spirit of God. And so he writes to the saints, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, and blesses them with the announcement of grace and peace from God. He begins in verse 3, we always thank God. Uh, The way that he opens the letter is by thanking God for all of the effects of the gospel in the Colossian church. And he's reminding the Colossians of all the effects of the gospel in them. The gospel has had effects in them that the gospel has um, reproduced and done all over the world. It's not just in them, but it's all over the world, as Paul says. What we have here is natural people who are being transformed by the supernatural power of the gospel. Nothing else could have done in them what the gospel did in them. The gospel has that unique power. There is, there is no power in all the world that can hold a candle to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I, I want us to do today as we look over these eight verses is I want the, the word of God to remind us of the supernatural power of the gospel in our lives. We're going to look at the gospel's effects in the lives of Epaphras and the Colossians and in Paul. When I was a little boy, um, there was this cartoon on TV called He-Man. Any, anybody know this cartoon? Um, Kurt's nodding back there. A few of you, but this was an, a 1980s cartoon, and there was um, there were a lot of shows, really tame children's shows that I was not allowed to watch as a kid. My my parents were uh, hyper vigilant in in guarding the TV, so I don't know if this you know should have. Well, this this show I think escaped their attention until I took up the battle cry of He-Man at church. We were gathered together as a church family in one of the members' homes, and the adults were upstairs in this home having um, Bible study and, and fellowship and prayer and all of that, and the kids were downstairs in the basement. Not too many of you know basements. Gary knows a basement. But we were downstairs in, in the finished basement uh, just playing and carrying on and um, and getting more loud as the time went by and like most little boys I was completely oblivious to how loud I was getting (laughs) which my dad would call an infernal racket I heard that expression a lot as a kid infernal racket 
And that's what I was making, an infernal racket. So at, at one point, I shouted out at the top of my lungs the battle cry of He-Man, which was in every episode of this cartoon. I shouted out, I have the power. Meanwhile, my parents are upstairs, you know, having this Bible study. And I can just imagine, maybe they were talking about, you know, the power of God, the Almighty God. And then there's this, <laughs> above everybody and all the noise in the house, there's this little kid who shouts, I have the power. So the next thing I know, the door to upstairs opens up and my dad, in a not-so-quiet voice, rebukes me, tells me to be quiet. As we grow up, as we learn and quote-unquote know more, we dismiss supernatural power. We relegate it to myth and comic books and, and fantasy. Everything in our world gets explained by science. Everything can be attributed, you know, all the natural effects are attributed to natural causes. All the phenomenon in the world can be explained by science. You know, everything's empirical, statistical, and quite predictable. And even Christians can fall into this way of thinking in our adult skepticism, even becoming, I think subconsciously, but truly skeptical of the supernatural power of the gospel. There is no power in all the world like the power of the gospel. There is no power in all the world like the power of the word of God. I want to remind you of this with some scriptures. Why does the world even exist? Why does it hang in space? Why do we orbit through this solar system? It's by the power of the word of God. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me shall every knee bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah 55, you know this passage? Again, there is no power like the power of the word of God. The Lord says, my word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jeremiah 23. The Lord says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? What did Jesus answer to the devil in the first temptation there in the wilderness? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is no power like the power of the word of God. And there is no power to save. There is no power to change, to truly transform us. There is no power to buy our freedom 
and justify us and sanctify us apart from the word of God in the gospel. So that Peter said, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, now he's quoting from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter says this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word that gives spiritual rebirth, that changes us, the living and abiding word, the word that never falls, that remains forever. It is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to our salvation. So what is the gospel? The gospel is this, that God's Son, our Creator, became as we are because of our sin, but without our sin, paying the debt of our sin, defeating our sin. He could not be held by our sin, but was raised to life, defeating sin and death and hell, so that now by the grace of God, anyone, anywhere, who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who trusts in Christ alone, is forgiven of their sin and justified before God. And this is the word of God, the good news word, that is the power of God to salvation. It, it came to us, just like it came to the Colossians. And we must hear it. We must learn it and understand it, just like the Colossians did, that it may bear fruit in our lives. Okay, we, we still haven't yet really got into the, the meat of Colossians 1, 3 to 8, so that's where we're going now. What we have in these several verses, again, is Paul's thanksgiving for the effects of the gospel. And what we're going to do in order to study this text out is we're going to start where Paul ends off. In basically three movements, this is what Paul says. He says, I'm praising God for the effects of the gospel in you, because it has borne fruit and it has increased among you as it has done around the world. It's this gospel that Epaphras first made known to you. So he he ends with Epaphras, and that's where we're going to start. We're going to look at the effects of the gospel in the life of Epaphras and the Colossians and in Paul in order that we may remember that we must never take the gospel for granted. It must always be central, kept central in our minds, in our hearts, our souls, in our households, and in our church. So here are three things we're going to look at. Like Epaphras, we must tell what God has done in the gospel. Then, like the Colossians, we must hear over and over again what God has done in the gospel. And then finally, like Paul, we must praise what God has done in the gospel. So first of all, verses 7 and 8, like Epaphras, we must tell what God has done in the gospel. Who is this man, Epaphras? He is a man who himself 
has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And now he's compelled and he loves to tell what God has done in the gospel. Paul says that he recently came to Rome where Paul is in chains under house arrest to report how the gospel seed that Epaphras planted in Colossae has borne incredible fruit. Paul says that Epaphras is Paul and Timothy's fellow servant for the gospel. He says he's labored hard for the church. This man who was a faithful minister of Christ on behalf of the Colossians. He's a fellow servant for the gospel. That's what you and I are. We're servants, first of all. We're not our own. We are the servants of the one true God. And we are fellow servants for the cause of the gospel. That is our calling to tell what God has done in the gospel through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To use the words of Philippians, this must be our aim. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is what we are about. Fellow servants for the gospel. To tell all what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, this is, I love this with Epaphras. He loves to tell what God has done. So he finds his way to the Colossians and he tells them what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. And then once the gospel has exercised its supernatural power on the Colossians and had the effects in them that only it can have, Epaphras finds his way back to Paul. And he tells Paul, what God has done through the gospel for the Colossians. He finds his way to the Colossians and he tells them what God has done. And when the gospel has had its work, he finds his way back to Paul and he tells tells him what God has done through the gospel, always saying what God has done. He's all about the gospel and the supernatural power of it. And this wonderful way of living must be our own. Telling sinners, fellow sinners, what God has done for them through the gospel. And then, not being shy about, not being shy, but rather boasting to others of what God has done through the gospel. Not boasting in what we have done or anything like that, but boasting what God has done through the gospel. Let me give you an example of this, rather personal example, uh, something from my own personal history that I only uncovered this past year. In 1809, my fourth great-grandfather, Edward Kitchen, was just a little boy on a farm in New Jersey. His oldest brother was named Joseph Kitchen. And Joseph Kitchen was a very passionate young man in these days. Um, A neighbor friend of his was emigrating to Upper Canada, which I don't expect most of you will know that term, but you're not supposed to think the frozen tundra of the north when you hear Upper Canada. In, In those days, in the early 1800s, Upper Canada simply meant southern Ontario and and eastern Ontario. 
So um, this, this neighbor friend was preparing to move to Upper Canada, but he cared so much about Joseph Kitchen's soul that he stopped by the family farm first, and he urged him once again to believe in Jesus Christ. But Joseph Kitchen was resistant, and he would have none of it. He rejected the gospel again. And so his neighbor friend left, and he made the move up to Upper Canada. His neighbor left, but the gospel didn't leave. It stuck with Joseph, and it worked in him constantly. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't stop feeling the weight of it until the light of the gospel pierced the darkness of his soul, and he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he was passionate. And now he was passionate to tell what God had done for him through the gospel. And so he walked 500 miles to Upper Canada from New Jersey to tell his former neighbor how he had been saved, to tell him what God had done through the gospel. And apparently he liked pioneer life in Upper Canada so well that he decided he would stay. And eventually his younger brothers joined him up there. You and I possess what the world needs the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the good news. God has put us into it, and he has put it into us. He has put the gospel into our hearts and in our mouths. We have the good news. We have the good news of God for salvation. Let us tell what God has done through the gospel. Second, we must not only tell what God has done, but we must hear over and over again what God has done through the gospel. Let's read again verses 4 through 6. Paul says in verse 3, We're always thanking God when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, look at verse 5, first of all. The second part of verse 5. Look at what Paul calls the gospel. He calls it the word of the truth. And then notice in verse 6 the different actions that Paul ascribes to the gospel, the power he ascribes to the gospel. He says, the gospel has come to you and it has come into the whole world. And just as in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, it's doing the same among you. You see the power that he ascribes to the gospel. The gospel is the word of God that is on the move. The gospel is the living and the active word of God. It's the power of God to salvation. So that the gospel comes into the hardest places and into the hardest hearts and plows up the the hardened ground of the heart and it plants itself in and it bears fruit for increase. Now notice... Stay with me as we go through this. This uh, there I have in verses 4 and 5 as we talk about hearing the gospel. There's the way that Paul words things and he piles phrase on phrase. 
requires a good bit of our attention, so stay focused here. Okay, so first of all, he calls the gospel the word of the truth. Then he ascribes great action and power to it. It comes, it bears fruit, it increases. Now, what are, what are the fruits of the gospel? The fruits of the gospel are that familiar triad that we often find in the New Testament, especially Paul's writings. Faith, hope, and love. Those are the fruits of the gospel. Now, normally, Paul writes it out like I said it. Faith, hope, and love. But the sequence here is changed. He says that it's the hope from the gospel that produces faith and with it love. Again, notice this. Look at verse 4 again. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So do you see how all of that fits together? Just as in all of the world, so it happened in Colossae that the hope they heard in the gospel latched onto their hearts to awaken faith and overflow in love. Let's talk about this hope. Because that's what latched on to them in the gospel. That's what they heard, and that's what produced faith that works itself out in love. We, we know that when we're talking about Christian hope, we're not just talking about, I hope so. You know, hope broadly speaking, or let's hope for the best. Hope kind of in the abstract. We don't have any certain hopes. We're just hoping for the general good, the general best. It all sounds like well-wishing. It sounds um, like shaky uncertainty. But we're not, we're not meaning that when we're talking about Christian hope. What is the hope of the gospel? What did the gospel assure the the Colossians, that they would have reserved for them in heaven by grace if they believed in Jesus Christ? What did the gospel assure them that they would have reserved in heaven for them? I think that Paul defines this in verses 27 and back in 26. Actually, let me cover verses 25 to 27. In in verse 25... Paul says that God had given it to him to make known the word of God fully. And to be more specific, he says in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This was Paul's mission, to declare this mystery, which is the word of God that had been veiled for so long. Then he says in verse 27, To them God chose, that is, to his saints, his people, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then verse 28, let's not skip these first three words, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. What was the mystery of the Word of God that had been hidden and veiled for so long, ages and generations? It is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what was so unusual and even shocking to God's people in the first century is that this was not only for God's covenant people, the Jews, it was for all people, all the nations. It was for anyone, anywhere who would put faith in Jesus Christ. Christ in you, even in you, today, which is the hope of glory. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive Christ in us. Christ dwells in our hearts, it says in Ephesians, by faith. And this is the hope of glory. Meaning, what we experience in union and communion with Christ today is the foretaste and the promise of the glory that is to come. That we have so much of Christ already today in this fallen, brutal world. And it is the guarantee that we will be with Him forever. For all ages, endless ages, we will be with Him in His glory. Paul says how great are the riches of this glory among all the nations. That The message is it is just as much for you as it is for anyone else. It is just as much for the, the furthest flung, vile sinner as it is for the child of Israel. And it's this word from God that is the power of God to salvation. Christ, even for you. Glory with Christ, even for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how you have spurned God before, no matter how deep your sin, Christ, even for you, if you will trust in Him. And it's this word from God that awakens faith in sinners and compels them to come to Christ. That we have glory laid up for us in heaven. It's the hope of being with Christ. We must never stop hearing. We must never stop seeking, learning, and understanding of this good news. Because it's the gospel that bears fruit. It's what he says. It's the gospel that bears fruit and increases in you. This is what transforms us and shapes our lives. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must tell, like Epaphras, constantly, all the way to glory, tell what God has done in the gospel. And like the Colossians, we must hear over and over what God has done in the gospel. And then third, we must, like Paul, praise what God has done in the gospel. Paul is in prison here. Under house arrest, which may sound to you like, uh, you know, pretty cozy and well off. He, he actually could receive visitors and outside support. Um, he could, but he says he was in chains. Uh, he's chained to a guard in this house, even as he can receive visitors. Paul is imprisoned, but he's still full of joy and he's full of thanksgiving to God. Later on in another imprisonment, Again, in the city of Rome, Paul writes to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, 
for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. And that's why in Colossians, he says we always thank God. Because even though He is bound, the Word of God is not bound. The Gospel is not bound. God is continuing to do His great work using the teaching of Paul in the Gospel to save and to transform sinners all over the Roman Empire. And so, he had taught it to Epaphras, the Gospel. Epaphras had taught it to the Colossians. And now things come back full circle as the report gets back to him of the effect of the Gospel in the city of Colossae. So Paul rejoices and he thanks God. And we can too. We are in... Um, a state. I, I suppose that Christians have always said this. I don't think um, Christians, you know, have ever said, you know, these are these are the good old days. We have it great. Things are easy. Christian life is no problem. There's so little. There's next to no opposition. You know that kind of thing. We've never talked that way. But we see what a troubled state our world is in today. We all we all know it, and more and more we're beginning to feel it. Racial divides, these old, old wounds are opening up so nasty. Ravaging storms, devastating, nuclear threats increasing, and on and on we could go. And it seems like there's so much power in the world that is evil, that is against the people of God. But I want you to know and I want you to believe with all of your being that again, there is no power in all the world that can even hold a candle to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many people are talking. There is so much clamor in the world. The political pundits, prognosticators, presidents too. But their word if it is not the Word of God, amounts to nothing. The Word of God, the Gospel, is all. It's what justifies us. It's what sanctifies us. It's in the Gospel that we live. And so we must never take the Gospel for granted. It must always be central to all we are and all that we do. Paul said this is the matter of first importance and nothing can take its place. It is the Word of God that cannot fail. It's the Word of God that can redeem the furthest life, can save the hardest heart. Let's praise the Lord for it. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of Jesus and the power of God in the good news to save. I pray, Father, that it would be all for us. Everything. Never not central. I pray that we would never allow anything to push it to the margins. That we would never be all about anything else but this. And I pray, Father, that even as we keep it central in our preaching and teaching and our prayers and our songs, 
I pray that it would be everything. It would be all in every heart, in every individual soul. I pray that we would to ourselves preach the Gospel and sing over the Gospel. And we would have those Gospel-confident and Gospel-centered prayers. Father, I thank You for our life and our freedom now in Jesus. Thank You, Lord, for Your power. And I thank You, Lord, for being all for us. We ask, Lord, that You would use us as witnesses for the Gospel in our community. May we see an awakening here for those who are lost. May they come in droves to Jesus because He alone can save. We pray in His name. Amen.